Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. What a privilege it is to share the Word of God and to share uh, in the current series that we're in. We're back to Nehemiah, had a couple weeks away from Nehemiah, Mother's Day and guest speakers and and uh, Pentecost Sunday, but Nehemiah chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 4, it'll be up on the screen. Uh, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, that's where we're going to camp out this morning is in Nehemiah 4. And we're going to talk about defeating discouragement this morning. How, how many of you have ever been discouraged? I could raise both hands and both feet, but then I wouldn't be standing. So uh, we've covered so far uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, knowing how to pray. We talked about how uh, Nehemiah prayed through the task that he believed God was giving him. And then we talked through Nehemiah chapter 2, how to tackle a tough job. And we talked about all the things that Nehemiah had to do to prepare for this journey and what he did when he got there. Uh, we're skipping over Nehemiah chapter 3, not because it's a bad chapter, but there's a lot of names in Nehemiah chapter 3. And there's a lot of just listing who did what. And so we, I, I mean, I could preach that this morning, but I would be bored. And so I'm not going to do that to y'all, just list the names and all that they did. And, and there's a lot to be said about working well with others, and, and we could talk through all that. But as I was preparing this week and just praying into, you know, what was next in our series on, on Nehemiah, I really felt like many were battling discouragement. And so I want to talk about defeating discouragement this morning. Uh, so Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, the way we're going to do it, we're going to read through it, and then we're going to break it down. So Nehemiah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish it in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Now my Bible, the, the next section is discouragement overcome. But when we prayed to God... And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. 
When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight with your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God frustrated their plan. Then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we're separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that it may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers and my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes, each took his weapon even to the water. What an incredible passage. There's so much that could be said about that. And I'm going to say a lot this morning. But I want to start with a question. Have you ever heard of Murphy's Law? Has anyone ever heard of that? The original Murphy was an engineer who conducted an experiment to test human acceleration tolerances. Now, I, I'm not a big fan of roller coasters. But essentially, the way Murphy worked is he would see how much your body could tolerate at different speeds and accelerations. Unfortunately for him, he installed 16 motion sensors the wrong way, leading to the now famous quote, if anything co can go wrong, it will. I guess the corollary is true. If anything can't go wrong, it will anyway. But here's some other laws that I found that were blamed on poor Murphy. Left to themselves, things tend to go from bad to worse. Matter will be damaged in direct proportion to its value. You will never find a lost article until you replace it. Everything goes wrong all at once. If everything seems to be going well, you've obviously overlooked something. Hasn't that ever been true for any of us? So as we come to, to Nehemiah 4, everything seems to be going wrong all at once. In chapter 1, we looked at how Nehemiah prayed. In chapter 2, we saw how God moved him from the prosperity of Persia to the desolation of Jerusalem. In chapter 3, we're introduced to the wall workers and discovered that in kingdom work, no one can do everything. And if I was going to preach chapter 3, I would say everyone has a part to play. And because some worked harder and Baruch worked with more zeal than anyone else, the construction project was really zipping along. But then we come to chapter 4 and things start to get complicated for Nehemiah. Murphy shows up and reminds Nehemiah that when everything seems to be going well, you've obviously overlooked something. I read an article this week. I like to find funny stories. I know, bad dad jokes. I, shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. I mean, it's, it's bad, y'all, that I enjoy these things. So I tried to find something that wasn't a really bad dad joke, but, but that I could use. And a, a woman, and her name was um, Edith, and she had eight children. She came home one Saturday afternoon after visiting the neighbor's house only to discover that five of her youngest children were huddled together in the living room, intensely concentrating on something. 
As she slipped in behind them to see what they were doing, she couldn't believe her eyes. Smack dab in the middle of her kids were several baby skunks. She screamed at the top of her voice, children, run! So each kid grabbed a skunk and ran to their own bedroom. If anything can go wrong, it certainly will. As I was praying through this week and I was thinking about just the last year and a half, everything that's gone on in the last year and a half in our country, in our world, and in a pandemic, I was really thinking about discouragement and how discouragement, I think, is the number one thing that has plagued so many lives in this last year. And there are at least three things that make it such a potent problem. It's universal. None of us are immune to discouragement. All of us will be discouraged at some point in our life. Everyone you've ever known has been discouraged. It's recurring. Being discouraged once does not give you an immunity to the disease. Wouldn't that be great? I've been discouraged once and now I'm immune to it. Never comes back. You can be discouraged over and over again. And when you're around someone who's discouraged, you often find it's contagious. That it can become dis- contagious and all of a sudden now you're discouraged about things you weren't discouraged about five minutes ago. And in fact, you can even be discouraged by the fact that you're discouraged. If you've ever gone through that. And this morning, I want to look at both the causes and the cures for discouragement. So I want to look at the causes. There are external causes of discouragement. There are two main types of discouragement. One set of problems comes at us from the outside and the other comes from the inside. And so I want to first look at the external. The wall workers were initially excited. They began to work with great anticipation and joy. It says of them in verse 6 that the people worked with all their heart. Things were going well. The people were excited. The wall was going up and then something happened. Getting the work started on the wall was a major achievement. But keeping the workers working proved to be a much tougher assignment. Someone had said that exhilaration is that feeling you get just after a great idea hits you and right before you realize what's wrong with it. Have you ever had that? You have some great idea and then all of a sudden, either someone's already done it. I remember a few years ago, Anna had come so excited because she had decided how we were going to become wealthy. She had the greatest idea in the world. And then three weeks later, we discovered Roku had already been created. She had this great idea. We can put it in a little box and it can have all these services and and it's all in one place. You just pay for a subscription and it all can be there. And then it was created. Have you ever had one of those things? You think, I need this. And then all of a sudden, QVC, it flashes across the screen. Where God is at work the enemy is also at work. We need to recognize that, that rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was certainly no exception to this. When people take kingdom priorities seriously, the enemy stirs up agitators to block the work of God. And the enemy uses two types of external forces. The first one was ridicule. We see this in verses 1 and 2. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. This is the third time in the book we come across Sanballat, who is Nehemiah's stiffest opposition. Every time we read about him, he is standing against the work of God, rejecting and ridiculing everything that Nehemiah is trying to accomplish. Someone once said that ridicule is the language of the enemy. Those who can stand bravely when shot at will collapse when they are laughed at. 
the enemy often insults the servants of God. Goliath ridiculed David when the shepherd boy met the giant with only a sling in his hand. The soldiers mocked Jesus during his trial and the crowd taunted him while he was hanging on the cross. Sanballat and his cronies had begun to ridicule the workers before the work even started. All the way back in chapter 2, it says they mocked and ridiculed us. And here in chapter 4, he is making a speech before the army of Samaria, intensifying the power of ridicule. Notice, he called the workers feeble. In, in, in that language, that word feeble literally means this, withered and miserable with no power. Withered and miserable with no power. And next, he ridiculed the job they were doing by asking four taunting questions. Will they restore the wall? I mean, can you imagine? Here's Sanballat in front of the Sumerian army, and he's saying, these guys are trying to be, rebuild a wall. They're, they're weak. They're powerless. They're withered. They, they can't do anything. How could a remnant of feeble Jews hope to build a wall strong enough to protect the city from a mighty army? Then he says, will they offer sacrifices? Sanballat is basically saying, it's going to take more than prayer and worship to rebuild the city. They, they, all these Jews know is how to pray and worship. They don't know how to rebuild a wall. And then he says, will they finish in a day? They don't even know the task that's at hand. They don't see. And then he says, can they bring these stones back to life? It's basically saying, not only are they weak, withered, powerless, and all they know how to do is pray and worship, they have no clue how long it's going to take, and what they have left of the wall isn't even worth using. Isn't that what the enemy tries to do to us sometimes? Then in verse 3, it was Tobiah's turn to ridicule the workers. And he tried a joke on them. What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Excavations on these walls. Now, this is incredible, y'all. Revealed that they were nine feet thick. They would need more than a small fox to knock them down. The workers became the punchline of every joke. And everyone got a laugh at their experience. And Tobiah hoped that his sarcasm would make the builders cast an apprehensive glass, glance at their hard work. Friends, whenever you attempt to get involved in the work of God, you will always face ridicule. I can guarantee it. Anytime you are pursuing the plan of God for your life, there will be a voice to ridicule it. But don't stop. The second cause of their external discouragement was repression. See this in verses 7 and 8. The enemies had moved from being bothered by the Jews to being very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Theologian once wrote, God's people sometimes have difficulty working together, but the people of the world have no problem uniting in opposition to the work of the Lord. I think this is a, a real telling sign for us y'all that when the world can, in a moment, get together to come against something and the church can't decide what color the curtains are going to be in the sanctuary, I think we have big issues. I've seen people fight over where the keyboard should go on the, on the, the platform, and yet they can, they can unite against what God wants to do. And yet when it comes time to actually do the work of God, oh, I'm too tired. I, I don't know. I've got discouragement. But then there's repression. The references in verse 7 are the four points of the compass. 
and we could talk about the different sides of, of where Jerusalem was and Sanballat and Samaritans on the north, Ashdod on the west, Tobiah and Ammonites on the east, and Geshem and the Arabs to the south. The workers were surrounded and lived in constant fear of being ambushed. They were surrounded. They, they were in fear. But see, what happens is, is not only do we have external things that can discourage us, and sometimes those are the easy ones to overcome. The hard ones are the internal causes of discouragement. The things that create problems from within. Opposition outside the ranks can lead to depression on the inside. It wasn't the voice of the enemy that was most pervasive. It was the voice of God's own people. And just like today, it's so easy to internalize the words of the enemy and feel like giving up. Notice the first part of verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, here's God's people. So you already have the enemy talking. But then it says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, discouragement started first within the royal tribe of Judah. They had David's blood in their veins, and you would think that they would have more faith and courage than the rest of the people. They were looked upon as leaders and pace setters. If the tribe of Judah was bummed out, then the other tribes would be more inclined to give up the project as well. And so that first cause of internal discouragement was fatigue. How many of you have ever been tired? How many of you are tired of fighting? You just feel like every time I turn around, there's something else, and I'm just tired. Verse 10 says this, Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out. Simply put, the workers were tired. That phrase, giving out, carries with it the idea of staggering, tottering, and stumbling. Here they were. When you're physically drained, it's very easy to be discouraged at the slightest problem. How many of you get in a bad mood when you're tired? And it's like, okay, everything seems to be way bigger of an issue than I thought it was. Catch me at the end of a long day, and all of a sudden that stubbed toe, I've broken both legs, and you know everything is just bad. It's also interesting to notice when the workers became fatigued and discouraged. Verse 6 says that the wall was built to half its height. Many times when we start a new project, the first half goes quickly because we're excited about accomplishing the goal, but then it just keeps going on, and the task seems longer than what it was when we started. But when the newness wears off and the work becomes routine and boring, then it's easy to become fatigued. When you're tired, it's easy to become discouraged and to begin to think that you will never finish the job. Verse 10 says, we cannot rebuild the wall. They were ready to throw in the towel. These are the same people who were described in verse 6 as those who worked with all their heart. Four verses separated people who were energized and ready to work and all of a sudden ready to give up. If you're feeling fatigued today, watch out. Tiredness can lead to discouragement. I talked about this a couple, a couple days ago. One of the most spiritual things you can do when you're tired is have a snack and take a nap. Elijah was running from Jezebel and he camped out under a tree. He took a nap and then the ravens fed him. He took a nap and he ate a snack. You cannot burn the candle at both ends on a long-term basis. Sometimes the most spiritual thing to do is go to bed. The second thing that can happen is you can get frustrated. Here's the second thing that happened. Verse 10 continues by saying, There is so much rubble that they cannot rebuild the wall. They became discouraged because they were so aggravated with the situation. 
I'm sure they were encountering old broken rocks, dirt, dried out mortar, other debris that was underfoot. The junk was everywhere and it was frustrating. Just as they lost sight of their goal, so too can we lose sight of our goal when we have too much garbage in our lives. Hebrews 12.1 challenges us to get rid of anything that causes us to be frustrated in our pursuit of godliness. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. I don't know what the rubble is in your life this morning, but if you have rubble in your life, if you have things that are tripping you up, throw it off. Lay it aside this morning. And we're going to have a time of prayer later where we can walk through that. The third cause of discouragement is fear. The enemies of the Lord's work had struck fear in the hearts of God's people, and they felt like giving up. Again, verse 10, we cannot rebuild the wall. Did you notice in verse 12 who gets afraid the quickest? It says, Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Those most affected by fear are those who lived near pessimistic people. So I was talking about earlier, if you get around someone who's just negative and discouraged, oftentimes that can just bring you down. If you want to limit the depressing thoughts that bring fear into your life, then it's best not to hang around with negative people. I remember in our, in our high school, uh, we had this big thing across the wall. It said, if you're going to soar with eagles, you can't run with turkeys. I thought that was the cheesiest thing to paint on a high school wall. But it was right there on the high school wall. Fear puts us in a frame of mind where we cannot only become discouraged, we can also become deceived. Now, if those of you who've been following this, you were supposed to read the whole book of Nehemiah. So if you haven't, spoiler alert, the enemy never does attack them. He never does come and attack Jerusalem. I'm studying in preparation for, for another series that I, I think God wants me to, to talk about after this, but in a book by, I think it's Douglas Rumford, I forgot to write it down, Scared to Life. This is what he says, 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty they don't make a difference. 5% are real, but we can't do anything about them. And 5% are real and we can do something about them. 5% are real that we can't do anything about, and the other five you can do. But that means 80% of the things that you're afraid of have no founding in your life. Or they're already behind you. So how do we cure discouragement? Well, the first cure is to request God's help. Now, here's a dad joke, okay? Now, I remember my second Sunday as pastor here. This was seven years ago. I told this joke. And there is a man in town, anytime he sees me, he says, that is the best joke I ever heard. So I'm setting myself up here to hopefully you'll like this joke as well, okay? There's a man hunting in the forest. And all of a sudden, a bear starts to charge towards him. And his gun won't fire. The man drops to his knees and he says, Lord, please make this bear a Christian. Please make him a Christian. And within seconds, the frightened man noticed the bear isn't running. The bear stops, gets on his knees, and says, Lord, bless this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> See, that's the best joke you'll ever hear from this pulpit. It is the best. 
Nehemiah requested God's help in chapter 1 for Jerusalem. In chapter 2, he prayed a popcorn prayer while he was in the presence of the king. Now in chapter 4, he prays two different times. He looked up before launching out. He prayed before proceeding. Take a look at his first prayer in verses 4 and 5. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Now, Nehemiah had no mercy. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. This was quite a prayer. He wasn't praying for his enemies to come be, be, become believers. Now, y'all, it's not how we pray after Calvary, okay? After Calvary, we pray for them to come to know Jesus. That, that's how we pray. But Nehemiah didn't pray that way. His prayer wasn't nice, but it was understandable. It was honest. He knew that the enemies were really fighting against God, and so he asked God to deal with him. Now, we can ask God to deal with the enemy, but remember, we do not war with flesh and blood. He didn't give lectures to the workers. He didn't organize raiding parties against the enemies or create propaganda campaigns, put a different spin on things. Here's the principle we can learn from Nehemiah. When people talk against you, don't talk back. Talk to God. Verse 9 tells us that they prayed to God and posted a guard. When their enemies started talking, Nehemiah continued to pray, and the people continued to work. I listened to it to a great, uh, it was like a three-minute video. I was going to try, I forgot to pull it up this morning. But it's Bill Johnson, uh, pastor of Bethel Church in Reading, talking about how he deals with his critics. I would say that Bill is probably one of the most criticized people in the charismatic world, often misunderstood. And, and the interviewer says, Bill, how do you deal with that? He says, two things. Number one, I check my heart, and I guard my heart. Number two, I take communion often, and when I do, I pray that their children would be blessed. I pray that their ministries would be blessed, and I pray. And he just goes on this whole thing about how he prays and he blesses his enemies to fall deeper in love with Jesus, and that their children would know God, and their grandchildren would know God, and that the work of the gospel would be fulfilled in their lives. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. When people talk, don't talk back. Talk to God. The second cure is to reorganize your priorities. In verse 13, Nehemiah said, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest point of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Nehemiah had already organized the people in chapter 3. And they'd finished half their task. Now there's a, a new change. So what does it require? It requires a reorganization. If the enemies were going to attack, they were going to do so at the weakest places. So Nehemiah puts guards at all the vulnerable spots. This served two purposes. It discouraged the enemy and it encouraged the people because it dealt with their fear. When we're discouraged, one of the things we can do is reorganize our priorities. You can look at your life. You can adopt a change in approach instead of becoming so discouraged that you quit. If you've got a problem in your marriage, don't bail on your spouse. Change your approach. Adopt a new attitude. Get some help. Have a problem in your job? Don't give up. Change your priorities. Have a problem in your walk with God? Don't stop following Jesus. Reorganize your schedule so you can meet with Him more. Plug into a small group. Don't be overcome by discouragement. Do something about it. As I said earlier, one of my favorite verses is verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall. If you want to defeat discouragement, the third thing you can do is remember who God is. 
Verse 14, jumping back to 14, I want to read it out of the Amplified Classic because I love the way it, it phrases it. It says, I looked them over and I rose up and said to the nobles and officials and the other people, do not be afraid of the enemy. Earnestly remember the Lord and imprint him on your minds, great and terrible, and take from him courage to fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And it's almost like a William Wallace speech right there. We will fight for freedom. That was a terrible Scottish accent. It sounded more Swedish than anything. But don't be afraid of them. Nehemiah knew, even in the face of opposition, that the success of the wall was wholly dependent upon God, who inspired it in its beginning. Verse 10 was true. The people could not rebuild the wall on their own. They needed to remember God and what He had promised. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy for me to forget God when things get tough. I think sometimes the last thing we want to do is go to God when things get tough because we want to placate ourselves. We want to feed our emotions. We want to, to hide away. But the first thing that we should do is remember who God is. How do you remember the Lord? Remember all that He's done. Revelation says that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. When we begin to testify of what God has already done, it becomes a prophetic word for our current season. He has promised to be faithful to you. Remember the Lord. Remember His promises. Remember His goodness. Remember His power. Our God is great and awesome. The people complained about all the rubble in verse 10. But wasn't the rubble there in the beginning? Of course it was. It was already there. The difference was when they started the project, they were focused on God and His character. Now they become rubble gazers. Friend, if all you do is focus on the junk in your life and lives of others, you'll become discouraged. Can we determine to be God-gazers? At the time it was completed in 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge was the longest suspension bridge in the world. During the first phase of the project, 23 men fell to their deaths in the icy water. Things were going from bad to worse because there were very few safety devices. And so when it was halfway completed, they decided to take another look and make some changes. You know what they did? They reorganized and built the largest net ever made and attached it under the area where the men were working. Was it worth the cost and time it took to do this? Ask the 10 men who fell into it without being injured. Not only did it save those 10 lives, but I'm also told that the work was completed in three-fourths the time because the workers were no longer afraid of falling. Friends, God's great security net spans the globe. No matter where we live, no matter what we've done, no matter how discouraged we've been, He's stretched out His everlasting arms beneath us. As a result, we can live and work freely without fear. Knowing that we're protected, we're safe and secure. As I close this morning, we're going to take communion and then we're going to move into the time of baptisms outside. We've got the grill going. We're going to have lunch. We've got all sorts of food. Please stay in, in fellowship and celebrate those who are being baptized today. We've got uh, five of our, our family members are jumping into the tub today. But when you think about it, most of us are just halfway. If even that in our Christian lives. We're well aware of the rubble and the mess. Like the wall workers, it's so easy to get discouraged and not remember the Lord who's great and awesome.
Jesus knows that we have a built-in capacity to forget and that many of us default to discouragement. I truly believe that's why he commanded us to celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis. We're to do it in remembrance of him so that we don't forget him. As we prepare to meet him at his table this morning, I want to just share just one more thing with you. Ephesians 2 says that God is rich in mercy. This morning we're going to take communion in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross. None of us deserve that. None of us deserved him going to the cross and dying a horrible, wretched death of a sinner. But he took our place. He died on that cross for you and for me. His blood was shed so that we might be forgiven and restored to our Creator. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity before we do this in remembrance of what He did to make Jesus Lord of your life. If you've never made that commitment to to surrender your life to Jesus, there's two things that happen in that. Number one, we acknowledge our need for a Savior. We need someone to rescue us from our sin. He paid the price for us. And in acknowledging that, The second thing we do is repent. We repent of the sin that has separated us from Him. And that begins a journey of following Jesus. That begins a journey of getting to know this incredible Savior who becomes our Lord. He's not some far-off God who started the clock and walked away. He's a personal Savior. He's the God of the universe who relates to us individually who died for each of us individually. And this morning, if you've never come to know Him, I want to give you that opportunity. With every head bowed and every eye closed. For this first part, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand if you want to give your life to Jesus this morning. Maybe you did at some point in your life, but you're like, man, I'm so far away from God at this time. I I want to come back to Him. With your hand, you're acknowledging, I want to repent of my sin. I want to come to know Him this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to have you come forward. This isn't to embarrass you, but Hector and Susanna, our associate pastors, are going to be up up front. They're going to make their way up front, and they're going to pray with you this morning. In acknowledging your need for the Savior this morning, in making that commitment to Christ, As a church, we're going to stand and we're going to pray together with you. But Hector and Suzanne are going to take your hands. They're going to give you a gift this morning. They're going to pray individually with you. So I see those hands. So this morning, would everyone please stand? Those who who have raised their hand and made that decision, Hector and Suzanne are going to be right here up front. This isn't to embarrass you. This is to introduce you to the Savior that we so love. Church, can we pray together with our friend this morning? Jesus, I repent of my sin. Today I give my whole heart to you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. I receive it today. Today I choose to follow you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook.
or visit www.equippingcenter.us.